1: Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So, welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I am here today joined by the wonderful Stephen Daines, who is the Chief Talent and Culture Officer for a core group. Welcome, Stephen. Nice to
0: see Thank you. Hi, you, Jeanette. Hi, good to be with you. How are you this afternoon?
1: Oh, amazing. Amazing. Really? Although I'm in rainy Manchester, and I think you're in glamorous Paris.
0: That's right. It's glamorous, 25 degrees, and can't get away from the sun. <laughs> well, well, before before we, we,
1: I, well mm, not quite. <laughs> but um, before we started talking, we were saying, weren't we, that a life in you know travel, leisure, hospitality it always seems very glamorous, but actually it's not always the case. <laughs>
0: Exactly. We're in offices, let's say. We're in offices. We have a good view hey. of Paris, though.
1: Perfect, perfect. Well, no, that's great. So, Stephen, on on I've got to sort of know you a little bit from, you know, what you post on social media. And I have also been very lucky to interview a colleague of yours, Duncan O'Rourke, who is the CEO of Northern Europe. Um, so I'm getting to know the Accor family quite well, uh, which is wonderful. But for people that maybe don't know your kind of background and how you've got from where you are to where you are now, would you mind just giving us a little canter through your journey, Stephen, if that's OK?
0: Yes. Um, thank you, Jeanette. Well, I was basically brought up in England when I was, when I was a kid, moved to France. My, my father's British, my mother was French. And I was really trained as a banker, uh, believe it or not. I trained in economics and uh, my father was a banker. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and, and so I trained for banking. And then something terrible happened to me. My girlfriend dumped me from literally from one day to the next. And I was very young, and so I was devastated. Uh, It's only because I was young that I was devastated by such a thing. But, And so I decided to do something which really I had in me to do, and that was to work at sea. And so I joined Carnival Cruise Lines, Carnival Cruise Lines, um, went on to become the number one cruise line in the world. They, they bought Cunard, for example. Um, mm. uh, the Queen Mary 2 is, uh, is a carnival ship. And that was where I got in contact with the world of hospitality. I loved the job on board. I loved being in touch with uh, so many different cultures, countries we were visiting. As you know, on a cruise ship, there's just people of all nationalities as, as crew. And um, and I met my my wife. I've, I've been married thirty years now, over thirty years, to a Colombian. And so I decided it would be best to live a family life ashore. And so I I went on and studied an MBA, specialized in hospitality with Cornell and ESSEC, um, a leading French business school. They were in a partnership at the time, Cornell and ESSEC. And so I did a two-year MBA, and in 1994 I joined Accor, and basically I've been with Accor ever since. I left twice; we can come back on that, and came back twice. <laughs> um, and I was in operations all of my life. So I basically I'm one of those guys that's been on the ground or close to close to gro- to the ground, close to hotels. I was in the railway business first with Accor, and then in the hotel business. Um, and it's only been for the last three years that I've been in a functional corporate role. I had left Accor, uh, still in operations, but in, in the healthcare industry, in cancer care. And I joined back uh, Accor as um, as head of HR. And as you rightly mentioned, we call HR talent and culture here. We can come back on that. And so for the last three years, I've, I've been in charge of uh, human resources, led All of of our teams through the COVID, um, the difficult COVID times, Mm. and now leading through the recovery. And which has allowed us, and I say allowed, as kind of it was merely an opportunity, you know, in in that crisis to lead um, a couple of new transformations. One which we underwent two years ago, and one which we're undergoing as we speak, and and, and which is very exciting for the group. So that's my... That's my career, basically, an operations guy turned h r
1: fantastic. I love it, and you know what there's a common theme here about heart heartbreak, then finding your love your <laughs> wonderful wife on board the carnival ship, and now here you are at a core with a you know a business that you've tried to leave twice, and now you're back
0: <laughs> and right.
1: there's, there's a big concept that we're going to talk about, which is your heart heartest kind of whole um umbrella concept and I think that drives a lot of your core values through the organization. So I can see that you're an emotional kind of guy, Stephen. You know, everything's at your heart. So leading with passion, um, which is which is wonderful. Um, can I just talk about a little bit the transition actually that you made from the operations of being very, very close to the customer to the sort of the huge functional role that you've got today? Was that a difficult transition for you? Um, or were you just sort of ready to move into that space, do you think?
0: I think the link is human beings right because in operations in a hospitality group yes we're in contact with our guests we're in contact with our owners mustn't forget that in the world of hospitality us big operators we really are now b2b to c models business models our first customers are the hotel owners but they are Um, human beings as well, whether they work in pension funds and real estate funds or whether they are wealthy families, human beings. And I think in operations, that is what attracted me and kept me there motivated all of that time, right? It's all of those interactions and the wealth of experience that you get because human beings are unfathomable, are unpredictable, they're always surprising. And and, and so when you try and organise as scientifically as you can a service, I mean, what is exciting is the level of uncertainty that's generated by the fact that we are human beings serving unpredictable human beings. And so moving into HR, it's not like if I had moved perhaps say into finance where perhaps the culture shock would have been greater, but I feel in human resources, I am putting to the service of the whole group in a function. What I've learned all of my life in operations. So, so no, it wasn't. It wasn't difficult at all. And um, and also, I suppose that the very fact that I was faced nearly immediately, three months after taking up the role, I was faced with the COVID crisis, which was again, you know, a high level of unexpected, something never experienced before, something that was obviously a trauma on many, many mm. people around the world, and where therefore. Those uh, That interest in heart-to-heart work was particularly valuable. Um, during the crisis, uh, Sébastien Bazin, the CEO of Accor, convinced the board uh, to use part of the dividends that we did not pay to our shareholders in 2020, um, put part of that money, €70 million, Euros, into a fund to help artists in difficulty because of COVID around the world. Because as we know, in Europe, in, in Australia, in, in North America, governments obviously helped citizens deal with uh, temporary unemployment, but it was not the case in many countries. Mm. And so we've helped uh, over 100,000 families with um, donations, direct donations, very often to buy literally rice you know, or pasta for, for themselves and their children. Um, and it was done in a very spontaneous way in the way, you know, the decision making from the from Sebastian, from the board, and then the way we implemented it around the world with very little paperwork just to get the money to people in need very, very quickly, was, I think, a clear testimony of what being a dacor, being a heartist, uh, is all about practically. Um, so you know, I had to deal with all of that, and 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 so I guess perhaps COVID, because of those uh, those um, traumatic times, um, uh, perhaps it was a particularly good movement for somebody coming from operations to join
1: you know mm, mm. yeah and i think um, i think as well you know with your background because you're used to dealing with the customers with you know the 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 sort of front facing um, elements of the business i think when you're then in a position which you are today of you know making some of the decisions around policies recruitment you can do that from a really good position of solid understanding and i i i would imagine that that therefore allows you to have much more relevance with the people on the ground because they have the respect that you have been there and done those type of roles yourself, so you know what it's like. Um, I think that's
0: important. Yes, that's absolutely true. Because what what you know what one must always strive to do in a function is pull your function to new heights, right? So you have to be ambitious. And for example. We're being very ambitious in terms of diversity at Accor. We've always been very ambitious, but um, we feel now is the time to be even more ambitious in terms of diversity in our teams and our leadership. And you're right, you know, you can only do that if you're pragmatic enough at the same time to understand the realities of operations, the realities of local cultures. And uh, and and if indeed you know you have the legitimacy as a, as a previous operator to impose things, which you know uh, sometimes obviously have to be imposed on operations. You know, you get you're very often in situations where operations, for very good reasons, tell you, well, it's not possible. You know, I we can understand central wanting to do this, but it's not possible. And so you you have to get into a conversation where. Where you know you get the person to accept that right. well, it, it is possible. It's difficult and it'll take time and and you know require support and help, but it is possible. And it's only I think if you've done it and you've been in that position. And very often, I remember in operations thinking, Jesus, what are they smoking in head office? You know, and it on me? <laughs> and, and and occasionally I would try to get away with pretending I was implementing it, but really doing it my own way. Very occasionally. And don't quote me on that. I, uh, but um, so I understand, you know, and I also know now when people tell me yes, 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 but really are thinking no, 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 and you know, as soon as you're away, I'll do it my own way. So, so I think it's it's great, and I think you know, there's other industries that typically move their leaders from operations to functions and then back to operations. And I think, for example, I'm very interested in uh, in naval history, p- p- military history. And, um, you know, and, and the Royal Navy has done that all the time, for example, you know, moving people from a ship to shore and shore to ship and uh, both benefit from knowing what the other party are doing and their priorities.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Now, I mean, there's so much in here. We're gonna. I was so looking forward to chatting with you today, Stephen. It's um, it's been a real um. We managed to actually organise this quite quickly as well, which was good. So I think the agility, the agility of a core, which is not always the case with a corporate, may I say, I've been the oh, for many years. <laughs> no, but we did. We organised this really fast, so that is great. But listen, one one thing we're going to talk about, uh, definitely about diversity and inclusion, because it's something I am incredibly passionate about, and you know, thankfully the. The World has moved on significantly. Still a lot more to be done, of course. You know, and I remember in my earlier career, I was, you know, pretty much nearly always the only woman in the boardroom with a full PL, you know. Um, and actually, HR would more typically tend to be have a more female bias in terms of HRDs, etc. So I think it's great to see more guys in this role. Um, and, and actually the boardroom has changed now, and I think every level of an organization. Um, you know, financial results are better. Uh, Decision making is of a higher quality if you represent the diverse range of your customers and your your, your people. So with with diversity and inclusion, then, Stephen, talk a little bit about a little bit around sort of the approach on the core. What are some of the initiatives that you're doing? Because with this podcast, when people listen to it, either as a business owner or in the corporate space or or whatever field they're in, they get a lot of insight and ideas um, that can be shared, and sometimes people go, "Oh, that's fantastic!" Stephen talks about that. Maybe I could apply that in my business. So I'd love to hear about what you're doing on the DNI space in a little bit more detail, if that's okay.
0: Of course. So first, you know, di- diversity and inclusion. I think, in a way, was something that uh, course started right from the onset because. Unlike our big American counterparts, our first territory, France and then Europe, were always immediately deemed too small, you know. Um, whereas I can understand our counterparts in America thinking, well, America's already a fantastic pitch to, to you know to play on. So there's mm. perhaps not a, a, a less immediate need to see further afield. But but in the case of a corps that was born in France. The founders who are still alive, uh, Paul Dubril and Gérard Pédisson, immediately realized that Accor needed to grow well outside of France and indeed outside of Europe. And the way they did that immediately was to decentralize, empower local people, get true local roots. You know, I, I was posted, for example, in Brazil for, for many years. And I was with Ibis, uh, and uh, I had Brazilian customers who would travel to Europe and come back and tell us, "Oh well, we, you know, we were surprised. We didn't know Brazil uh, that uh, Ibis had grown outside Brazil. So, so they thought Ibis was Brazilian, and and which is exactly what we were looking for. You know, we didn't want people to think." That Ibis or Novotel were French brands; they had to be felt of as local brands, and you achieve that by going local with your leadership, with your managers. So, right from the onset, there were there was this cultural diversity across the group, and then obviously we embarked upon uh, gender diversity, as you mentioned, mm. and so today we're in a position where. Precisely. For example, in South America, half of our general managers are ladies. And today, senior leadership at Accor, we're at about 39%. 39% of our top leaders are uh, ladies. So, you know, we're, we're not where we should be yet, 50%, but uh, we're getting there. We have uh, margins of improvement on gender diversity. For example, in luxury, hospitality, and uh, perhaps uh, more p- particularly in some areas of the world, like like, like the Middle East or, uh, or North America. But you know what? It's interesting you were saying, so this gender diversity has brought a lot in terms of thinking differently. And I, I agree, and obviously, you know, it was uh, totally ridiculous that there should be less, uh, it still is ridiculous, that there should be less than half of the leaders of any company anywhere who are ladies. but in my experience, in my experience, Jeanette, I've always found it extraordinarily easy to work with ladies. I, I, you know um, I have not found it that different ever, really, to working with guys and, and men. What I find is more interesting in terms of real added value because of real differences is cultural differences. And so when, as a European, say, you work with South Africans and Australians, um, people from Thailand, South Americans, I'm married to, to a Colombian. Or even closer to home, you know. I was I worked in Italy for, for five years, for example, and I saw strong cultural differences, or with Indians, or with the Chinese. This is where you're really on a learning curve. This this is where meetings become sometimes difficult because. Because the cultural difference in, in, in speaking and in listening, in acknowledging, in saying yes when you mean no, or vice versa, there, there you get really into, into something that is, I find, worthwhile in terms of growth. And so, as I said, you know, we've, at a core, that kind of cultural diversity has always been strong because we've had those local roots. But still, we're not as, and we're not where I want to be. You know, still uh, there are, say, perhaps in some parts of Europe, um, too many people from Northern Europe or in some parts of Asia, where Veronique was, uh, my my assistant here with me, Veronique was posted for a long time. There are too many Australians. Um, In South America, for example, we're not quite where we should be. Um, In South America, in Brazil, um, the the percentage of colored people in Brazil is is very high. It comes from from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, the, the way South America was colonized. And that's not reflected in the number of colored GMs, for example, colored leaders. So this is where... I want the big thrust of effort to be in terms of diversity inclusion in the next 10, 15 years. Um, It's interesting because we we just measured through uh, our engagement survey, we just measured this, um, we're trying to establish global KPIs in terms of diversity, right? And it's not easy because in some places like Europe, you're not allowed by law to measure colored people. But so what we asked our people responding, so 150,000 people in managed hotels responding to our engagement survey is um, how many of you feel that you belong to an ethnic or racial minority? And the global number was 25%. 25% of our staff in hotels feel that they're part of an ethnic or cultural minority. The number of GMs, which, you know, is, is the level of leadership that I really look at because to me in a hospitality company, the, the GM position is, is the most crucial position across the board, like the captain of a ship in, in the maritime. The percentage of GMs who thought, who think themselves as we speak at the, at the core part of a racial, um, or, um, ethnic minority is 25%. It's 14%, sorry, 25% for the whole staff, 14% for GMs. So it's not bad, you know. Um, We could be with a much lower, we could have been with a much lower percentage uh, at GM level. We're not. 14% I think is an interesting number. But we, we can improve. And arguably, we should get gradually over the next 10, 15 years to the same percentage as global staff which would mean that anybody starting with us in the rooms Division or in the F&B uh, Division of a hotel, restaurant, and thanks to our effort to train people and to embark on what we call a social elevator, would have statistically the same chance of getting to GM level as say a, a, a terrible old white guy like me, you know, and uh, and so that's 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 where I want to get to, um, pushing ourselves across the globe, and it means different things in different places. It may mean, for example, in Brazil, we already have nearly all of our GMS are Brazilians, but it's ensuring that coloured people have the same chances as as white people in in Brazil. It could be in the Middle East to have more locals from the Middle East and mm-hmm. perhaps fewer French or British people in, in, in management. Um, and likewise in Asia, perhaps proportionately fewer, fewer Australians as, as we move forward. Um, and, yeah, so this, this, this is the fascinating journey we're embarking on. What You know, what, what I would like really is a core to be known within the next 5 years as the, the 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 most culturally diverse company on earth. And and I think given our our business our industry that is locally rooted with global brands but globally but locally rooted I think I think we can achieve that and, and in fact I think we're probably close to being that already but but I just need I need KPIs because, you know, we need to be driven by things that we can measure. Um, And so we're only starting in those global measurements. Um, And and, and once, you know, I have those KPIs to prove it, then I'll be able to assert it, you know, even, even, uh, even more robustly.
1: Fantastic. No, there's so much, isn't there, To in this whole area. I mean, and as we say, we talk about diversity, gender diversity, you know, is, is not a new topic. And we've made some great progress, more to be done, you know, then we have cultural diversity, social mobility, LGBTQ+, you know, there is there. And then, of course, you know, the whole disability um, side of, of making sure that we're embracing, you know, the sort of the purple pound and, and everything that comes with that. So there's a lot, it's something I'm really passionate about. So I, I love the fact that You're equally passionate as well, Stephen. I mean, and one of the things that you talked about, which I I actually used to very much implement when I was the managing director of the emerging markets, the TUI, so I bought, ran, sold businesses all over the place, China, India, Brazil, similar to you, you know, kind of lots of different cultural um, immersion in those markets, which I loved. I really enjoy that, genuinely. But I used to always say to the guys and to my team, you know, you have to... Think global, but act local. So, yes, have that big ambition. Have you know the, the, the power of the brands and everything that the group can bring, but you have to be able to apply it in the right way. And if you go into a market thinking you can come in as a Western European and you're going to be successful, well, then it's not going to work that way. <laughs> so you have to absolutely embrace that culture. And um, I think you're right. A core is an incredibly Diverse organisation, both in terms of the brands, but the markets you operate, your customer types. So you've got those amazing foundations, haven't you? And now it's all about pushing on to the next, the next level. So yeah, I love that. I love that. Can we talk about the employees actually? Um, you know, Stephen, because you've got is two hundred thirty thousand employees at a core. Is that the right number?
0: It's a including, big including people in franchised operations, about two hundred
1: sixty thousand.
0: Wow. That's so in our managed hotels, about 160,000 uh, people across the world. And, and, and we really have this incredibly broad spectrum of brands and segments. We, we literally start with youth hostels. We have a, a, a relatively new brand called Joe and Joe that operates youth hostels into low-cost with IBIS Budget, that's a very strong brand and a lot on a lot of uh, continents already, right through IBIS and ECO, MidScale, you know, Mecca and Novotel, and then right up through to uh, Raffles um, in, in luxury, L- Raffles and Orient Express. We're, we're, we're the only operator really that you know that is arguably equally as strong in all of those segments. And um, But you see, just, just to revert back to what you were saying about diversity and global versus local, guest expectations are changing, right? The market is changing. And, then that, and that, is, that is both fascinating and sometimes daunting for, for, for a hotel operator of 50 years. Because for a long time, I think two things. First, we were really catering to travelers, right? Essentially travelers. We were not that busy looking after locals mm. because hotels, the hotel industry was thought of, designed to accommodate people coming from afar. Um, that's changing. I'll come to that. And, and, and the second thing is that, particularly in Europe, you see us, core. We, we we appeared in the 60s and 70s in a market that was obviously totally fragmented and made up of family businesses. And so the traveller, the business traveller in particular, I mean all travellers, but business travellers in particular, were in for surprises as they stayed in family-run hotels. Mm. Sometimes good surprises, but more often than not bad surprises. And so what we tried, I think, as big brands uh, in common, obviously, with our American counterparts, was to bring standards, right? Quality standards um, above market, but but standardized. And so we prided ourselves at one stage on bringing to customers an experience that would be very similar at the Novotel Santiago Chile that the, the NovoTel Paris and, and, and the NovoTel in Singapore. Today, the market has shifted and we have to look after local guests as much as we have to look after travelers. And, and I think COVID was an interesting accelerator in that because there were no travelers for, for a long time. And And generally speaking, we know that... Our planet is suffering from, you know, carbon emissions. Um, there is something around, perhaps, traveling a little less looming in the in the immediate future and, until we find um, cleaner energy. And so, I think that us big operators, we're understanding as we speak that it is at least as important to offer a great experience to people who live perhaps within a 20-kilometre radius from from the hotel. And lifestyle hotels are offering that, right? We've bought a lot of lifestyle brands recently. We're acquiring that know-how. Different kinds of employees, we can come to that in a minute. No standards, in a way. I mean, the standard is to surprise. The standard is to be outside the standards, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And and so something very, very interesting because – as I was saying, it requires a different profile of people. Mm. And, And we're learning that. And the hospitality schools are learning that. So diversity is everything we said, gender diversity, cultural diversity, LGBTQ+, the disabled, accommodating all of those people to serve an ever more diverse customer base, guest base, not only travellers, but but locals, who expect something different from their routine. But the new diversity, therefore, to serve those new guests is perhaps people who come outside of the hospitality sector, who are perhaps closer to the entertainment sector. Mm. You know, we're probably shifting a little bit towards the entertainment industry rather than just the hospitality industry. And that requires... Yeah, diversity. I think we're of an overly conservative industry. We've been overly conservative. We've generated perhaps overly conservative profiles, career paths. And this is also, therefore, a new diversity that, that we have to work with to work for. Right? Um, there's, there's something new yeah. here.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. You're absolutely right because the customer customer requirements are, are changing constantly and um, arguably more demanding actually than than probably ever before. You know, and, and I think in particular coming out of a global pandemic where people haven't travelled for quite a while, you know, partly business travellers are getting back into you know their routine of whatever their travel travel requirements are, but for someone who's travelling for leisure. And if they've sacrificed, say, a family holiday for the last two years, when they travel now, arguably they, their expectations are even more because they they've been deprived for, for, for you know for this time. So actually, they they absolutely want to have you know um, an experience that's going to be going to be very fulfilling end to end, as opposed to it being a transient, just a hotel room. Um, which yes, is- I think I think
0: what they want is a mixture, right? They want standards. Mm. They're obviously quickly impatient if they have to wait, you know, in a line. Or um, so they want standards of service. They want professionalism, but they want to be surprised, right? I, th- I think that our daily lives have perhaps been more grim than usual during mm-hmm. COVID, and so you, you you really want an emotion. You want to be stirred out of your routine by the experience you get in the restaurant or in the hotel. And that, that, again, that requires a, a new kind of professionalism from the teams because you don't create an experience that is mind-blowing, that really shatters the person, surprises the person in an amateur way. You know, it, it requires a lot of know-how. And the paradox, obviously, therefore, we, you know, we're into a new topic now, Jeanette, is that... Mm. After the pandemic, to be quite honest, naively, we were hoping that our staff would flock back, that, you know, um, upset by months of unemployment, even if they were paid, uh, you know, subsidized to stay at home, they would be so happy to come back with us. Well, no, it didn't actually quite work that way. A lot of people decided during the pandemic that uh, the partner, was a very good thing and that they didn't want to go back to an industry where one has precisely to work when others are having a good time. Yeah. Because after the pandemic, as you know, it's the leisure, the leisure segment that came back hard. Corporate segment is now back, thank God. Mm. We're back to 2019 levels in terms of business meetings and business travel. So the old world has come back. You know, we're happy about that. You know, all the consultants of the world had forecast that we would lose structurally twenty percent of the business. It is not happening as we speak with that to corporate level. But it's the bit, it's the leisure it's the leisure segment that came back first. And obviously, you know, those leisure people they travel a lot on Friday nights and Saturday nights and weekends and holidays, which is exactly when our people also want to have a good time and don't particularly want to work. So we've been faced with a talent shortage, a staff shortage, that caught us a little bit off guard. Um, it's also because there's a coincidence, total coincidence, in the Western world, the end of the pandemic, coincided with new policies on immigration, Um, A lot of countries, in a lot of countries, voters, people have voted for governments to close borders, to erect higher walls. And and this is is an issue for our our industry. We need people who really genuinely want to work, are happy to work, to work hard physically. And so, uh, so, yes, it's been a difficult time for our industry, as for any industry where basically you cannot work from home. And any industry where you have to work on social hours, uh, it's been uh, it's been a challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as well. You know, hospitality, travel, you know, airlines, airports, you know, all of these areas. I mean, you can see there's a real bit of a war on talent, really, um to actually get people back into the sector, but also, you know, to 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 I think to a, to to showcase that this is a great industry to be in. You know, so someone who is Choosing uh, a career at an earlier stage of their development, you know, it's it's sometimes it's not easy to actually. You know when the salary is of a certain level when you're starting out, and let's face it, you know it is at a certain level. But of course, the career opportunities are huge. Um, but to actually marry those two points, because in the short term, someone could probably earn more being an Amazon driver sometimes than actually making a career choice to come into travel, leisure, hospitality. So, so on the attracting talent side, um, Stephen. What, what's the what's the advice that you've sort of applied at a core, but also advice you would give to other sort of travel, leisure, hospitality businesses or any business struggling to actually get people into the organisation? What's important in uh, attracting people in the first place, do you think?
0: Well, I think, you know, it's a little bit like with guests. We were just saying, we you, you know, COVID has brought us, we have to diversify our targets, you know, a hotel mm-hmm. cap- Rely on, say, Chinese customers that come from China, or on the corporate segment, or you know, you you have to be very varied in the way you attract guests. And I would say exactly the same for staff. because you know, Jeanette, what you were saying about career development, you're right, of course. But there's a lot of young people around there who are not interested in a career in the hospitality industry, but who equally would be very interested in perhaps a six month or nine month Mm. experience and live you know the emotional experience of being in touch with foreign guests and being part of of a very diverse team serving those foreign guests and that's fine and you know i don't i don't want people to think oh hospitality is is for me only if i want to do a career in that no you know you can you can have a great experience that will last just a few months Equally, you could be interested in working just two hours a day with us, because perhaps you're taking care of your parents at home or of your children, or simply you're an artist and you know you really want to work on your art a lot and just work for two hours, perhaps at lunchtime in, in the restaurant, just do those two hours. Now, in operations, it, it's not easy to handle that diversity, right? It's logistically difficult because obviously you have all types of rosters suddenly and you have to train more people. You have to accept there's more turnover. But I think that's the biggest advice that I can give ourselves, you know, at a core and as an industry. And you know what, Jeanette, the, the, the great thing is that it brings the diversity I was speaking of that we need in terms of profiles, in terms of past experience, in terms of motivation. We have an ever-diversified uh, panel of guests to serve, and we need an ever-diversified workforce to serve those guests well. And so obviously a hotel or a restaurant cannot work with just small part-time, um, part-time jobs working a few hours a week, that, you know, the service would collapse. You need some people who are robust and 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 are on a career path. This is where the diversity plays in, right? And so this is where, this is what, therefore, we've been working with our hoteliers around the world in the 5,000 hotels, learning to deal with that, learning to offer flexibility. We've obviously had to make an effort in terms of salaries in some places. Our salaries were, were just... Too low, we're not competitive on the market. And thankfully, since COVID, thankfully, for the moment, we've been able as an industry to raise our average rates, our room rates. Yeah. And and I know that airlines have done likewise, right? So we're all finding that suddenly it is more expensive to travel but perhaps that is something that was needed. There was a step change Mm -hmm. that was needed. We we cannot be just a high volume, cheap industry where our workers suffer from the fact that prices are too low. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I don't know if there's a kind of unconscious wisdom amongst us (laughs) or desperation for travel is such, but people are paying higher prices. And I yeah. think we have to educate guests that surely it's in their interest that everybody who serves them has a decent life and has a decent salary to 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 to, to nourish their own families, right? I, I but it's an education that we need to make, um, mm. and and I think the. The ESG revolution, you know, everything to do with the planet and the social impact of companies has increased tremendously. That awareness has increased tremendously with COVID, and I I think it's great. And I think tourism, it's happened right at at, at, at the right moment. You know, I think we were on the verge, probably, of overdoing it, you know, of uh, mass travel, some cities starting to, the local inhabitants we know in Dubrovnik or Venice or Barcelona or Amsterdam, starting to feel uneasy about so many tourists. So I think it was good as an industry, COVID, it kind of forced collectively us to think different, to address our our, uh, guests differently and our workforce differently.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I agree. And I think through that almost, you know, we've had to think more creatively, haven't we? It's forced us. But actually, a lot of businesses have come out in a much better position, ironically,
0: after exactly.
1: COVID than had it not happened in the first place. So I think exactly. to embrace that and see, you know, of every adversity, there will always be opportunity if you have the mindset to uh, Think of it that way. And yeah, absolutely. I think flexibility and being open minded and different policies to encourage. I love what you said there around yes, it's great to have people join the industry for a full career, but actually, it, just because you have a, a specific time frame or a situation in your personal life, it does not mean that you can't have a very fulfilling experience in hospitality, no matter how short or long that may be. And I think that's a really fresh thinking because I've not heard that spoken about very widely, Stephen. So all credit to you guys for, for doing that. But yeah, I think that that opens it opens you to more more options, doesn't it? To find that talent.
0: Yes, and so it involves both on our part at our core in the industry and on the part perhaps obviously of of people perhaps thinking of joining us, um, perhaps a bigger amount of risk-taking. And and I think, again, going back to something I mentioned earlier, um, perhaps we've been excessively conservative as an industry. Um, You know, I often say industries – very often are led by their luxury segment in terms of forward thinking, of uh, thinking different. We know that we tend, as a population, all of us, to copy what the wealthy are doing, right, and, mm. and want to do the same, and, and this is how fashion works and, and a lot of industries work, like the car industry works. There will be innovation in a luxury car And then little by little, it it gets democratized in in all vehicles. And I think when you look at our luxury segment, Jeanette, in the hospitality industry, it has probably been over-conservative. Yeah. Um, Because we were trying all the time to replicate standards of service inherited from the 18th and 19th century, taught in hotel schools and reproduced to perfection, to, to an art. But that has perhaps prevented creativity, innovation, um, uh, whereas other industries that were less trying to reproduce systematically things of the past were more Mm forward-thinking. And I think the lifestyle segment in in the hotel industry is very relevant in that respect. they've, They've consciously tried to steer clear of conventional wisdom, of conventional service, of uh, things that are overly stiff, and and today suddenly I think all of us we want to experience professional service, but we don't want it to be stiff. We don't want it yeah. to be excessively formal. It it, it suddenly it feels very nineteenth century like, right? <laughs> and uh, and so as an industry, yes, I you know I, I I think there's there's a break with the past that was needed, that's been perhaps thrust upon us. <laughs> Um, particularly during COVID, but as you say, as an industry we're, we're coming out much stronger.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And and Stephen, when you look back through your career, I mean, you'll have had highs, lows, you know, and someone listening to this interview now or watching it on YouTube, you know, maybe thinking, oh, well, you know, it's all great for Stephen. He's had a wonderful career. It's all been plain sailing. But I'm sure it hasn't always been been the case. So can you think of, of times when you've been sort of, you know, most challenged in your career or, you know, it hasn't all gone well for you and you've had to really kind of, dig deep in terms of your resilience you know maybe it might be quite helpful to share some of those aspects with with people because um it isn't always perfect at the top is it
0: it's never perfect at the top and but yeah I I think you know looking back the the times when I learned most was the most uncomfortable times Mm. and so and so you know I, I think that the the best advice, the best thing perhaps I did regularly was to take risks, was to take risks, was, was you know, I was going to say like a gambler, you know, putting all of the money he's won on the table again on, on one <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'm being extreme there, but many a times I accepted positions that were probably over my strength. Mm. And, and therefore, regularly, And and my family, my wife would tell me, Jesus, how stupid can you be? You know, it was just getting better. You were just getting a bit more time, you know, oxygen to take care of, for example, of us. Mm -hmm. And now you're going into a new position again and you're going to suffer again. And, you know, we're not going to see you. And yes, you know, regularly I did that. I don't know, I don't know why, but somehow I had the urge. I've always had the urge to be uh, slightly in an uncomfortable zone, you know, slightly all the time think, struggling. And it, it, it's a paradox because you'll, you'll think, oh, Jesus, the, the, the poor teens who were working for him, you know, they were probably they were probably feeling that all the time. Perhaps they were. And <laughs> <No>, I apologize <laughs> to them if they're mm-hmm. listening to me today. But I feel that that was also the learning curve that has allowed me, you know, constantly to progress. I I, I had a, Teacher in literature, Dr. Motson, actually is listening to me, um, an English guy, um, when I was 17, and, and he used to tell us in life you should always do what you don't want to do, <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's when you learn, right? And I've, you know, it's kind of nourished me in, in a way. And so very often I've accepted things. And two days later I was thinking, Jesus, why did I accept such a thing? But but there was this, this, this urge to be off balance and, and learn and learn and learn and learn on the job, you know. Mm. I, 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 obviously, in, in, in HR, in talent and culture, learning and development is key and offering great learning programs is, you know, is always immensely, I think, rewarding and refreshing to individuals and we need to do it. But there's no such thing as learning on the job. And, and, and the American culture is particularly good at that, right? It's kind of thrusting you <laughs> on a job, perhaps with not enough training, really, but, but you learn quickly. I think human beings are the most, obviously, sociable, but, but also the most flexible, the, 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 the better adaptable person, which is why, incidentally, and I'm going to say something that is politically very incorrect, but, you know, global warming is a terrible thing. But I still feel that humanity in its past has regularly learned to deal with the unexpected and the unknown, um, including when obviously, you know, it's hurtful in the short term. And in a way to feel a human being, I I feel in a career, that's what we need to do. And, and, And I always both admire and wonder at people who've been in the same job for a very long time. know Mm -hmm. i i I admire that i'll tell you i'll tell you i'll tell you a story the other day i I went i went to barcelona of all places which is basically where i started my my career uh started in paris but i was appointed to a job in barcelona in 1996 and i used to have coffee in a bar opposite the railway station where i was working in barcelona sense and i go into the bar and lo and behold, and I find the same waiter, and this was just before COVID, you know. Over 25 years old, I find the same waiter who had been serving me coffee back then when I started my career. So, and he recognized me as well. Like, Jesus, we're not going to start. So we started speaking. And I said, so, you know, here I am, and I've been around the world, I don't know how many times, and I've been in countless jobs and so on. And I asked the guy, I said, so, so, so. How you know how are things? He said, he said, oh, actually, you know what? I, I, fantastic! I've had a great career. I've I've stayed here, but it's been great. <laughs> I, was, I was shocked, you know, that he could actually enjoy have stayed there uh, a whole time, and I nearly admired him, you know. Saying Jesus, thank God, there are people like like those guys around, you know, who actually enjoy. Um, I was going to say, being a stick in the mud, somehow, you know. But yeah, well, I guess we're all
1: we're all different, aren't we? We're all different, yeah. Absolutely.
0: My advice would be take risks, but but there are people who I guess enjoy a career and uh, just just staying where they are. So yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. No, I'm I'm a bit in your camp, Stephen. I would always say, uh, push, you know, push on, be the best version try not to worry about failing you know you'll learn something anyway even if you do you know so i'm i'm very very similar to you and um and also i think the other thing which i think is interesting is that very often people will see potentially new when you don't see it in yourself and those promotions or those opportunities that can come up can sometimes to yourself think oh my gosh really whereas actually Someone else has been observing you probably for quite a while and can see that, that you've got what it takes. You might not be the perfect item yet, but they've got the faith in you. So I think sometimes it's
0: worth yes. if other people is, believe this, in you. And this is where sometimes ladies and men differ because, because men will, will accept a challenge uh, without thinking twice. Um, ladies perhaps will have a tendency to 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 over overthink it and and Mm -hmm. then retreat saying oh well no it's not for me i'm not ready right yeah and 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 i think this accepting to take risk even if you kind of know you're not quite ready is is the greatest advice to to young people
1: yeah yeah because you never know where it might lead say yes and figure it out afterwards
0: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And trust the person who's giving you the opportunity, as you've said, Jeanette, They've probably observed you. They they probably guessed something about your 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 potential. And if they got it wrong, well, it'll be their mistake as much well as yours. <laughs> <laughs> so give it a try. Don't think twice. If you're given an opportunity, take it. And obviously, I was very lucky because. Because I had a family who was ready to, to move around, and I, you know, and, I, and I think geographical mobility, getting to work with different cultures, getting exposed in a way to new levels of discomfort because you don't know anybody, because you're, you live far away from the grandparents or whatever, um, is also, I think, tremendously rewarding if you're in, the, in, the, in families that, that allow that to happen.
1: Yeah, get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the message, I think.
0: That's the message. (laughs) I love
1: it. I love
0: it. Always choose the steepest path. Never choose the, you know, that's the other thing. Again, back to this uh, doctor in literature telling me, you know, always do what you don't want to do. And and, and I think it's that. It's it's choosing the difficult paths. uh, You know, they're always more rewarding than the easy path.
1: Where there's, I think there's a a sort of a general philosophy, isn't it? If you do in life what is easy, life will be hard. If you do what's hard, life will be easy. I'm not quite sure it's exactly as straightforward as that, but the
0: principle. But I think it's a, you know, when 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 you're. when you're young, it's, uh, it's good to start with that.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Brilliant. Well, well, listen, hey, listen, we could talk all day, Stephen, but I know you've got, you're, uh, you're a busy man. You've got lots to do. So I've got a last few questions, if I may. It's been fantastic talking to you. But just before I actually do that, if it's okay, would you just explain to me a little bit about heartist, heart and artist? Because you talked about it earlier, and I meant to get you to exp- expand on that. So maybe you could just summarise that, because the whole concept, I think, is incredibly powerful
0: yes it's really the concept that holds us together um, we're a company with 40 brands each brand over 40 brands each brand has its own culture so to speak what hold, what holds us together is this this common concept that each each of us who works at a core we're an artist because we come with our know-how with our personality into a job that is as i mentioned earlier In the entertainment industry in a wider sense than hospitality and so we have to be who we are in a role that is attributed within the experience that we want consistent with the brand standards with guest expectations and we do all this heart to heart because what we're trying to provide people with guests with is an emotional experience we, you know, we want to stir something deep within the heart of our guests. And you can only do that if you work out of the depth of your own heart, not just with your brain or just with your body, but with something that is emotional. And so blending this artist concept and the heart concept gives, gives hardest, wherein every person being who they are whomever they are, discovering perhaps in the process actually who they are, are trying to guess, to feel what the guest is feeling in the interaction they're having. Is the guest exhausted, elated, sad, happy, expectant, um, very depressed? That, that, that's what we have to sometimes in a split of a second or in a few minutes or a few hours to establish to create a connection Mm. and in that way we're all heartists because whatever the brand and even in in the central office serving people who (laughs) serve guests it's basically the kind of relationship we want to to establish heartest to heartest.
1: I love that. What an amazing way of bringing those two, um, so, well, two aspects together. I just think it's really powerful and, and um, it really does say a lot about the values of, of a whole core team. So I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, so my last few questions, Stephen, um, if I may, if you'll indulge me. Uh, so when you think about all the great advice that you may have had over the years, is there any particular standout advice for you that served you very well uh, for the time that you've been around on this planet?
0: I think the only one is to be bold, you know, and and I think it's your podcast. I think is named brave, bold, and brilliant, and I think of the three words, it's it's definitely brave and bold that uh, that I like. Um, push yourself all the time, and um, and and in a way, one could argue. Oh, but there's a time where you you could overdo it, you know. People go into burnout. Um, in my experience, um, there, there's more burnout paradoxically in routine than which is why, incidentally, you know, interesting. We're just out of our engagement survey, worldwide engagement survey, and engagement in hotels consistently is very high in hotels. Um, why? Because the physical effort. Because. It requires, you know, by being constantly exposed to guests requires someone to be bold and brave because mm. it's, it's like being, it's like acting, but eight hours a day in your job. You know, you're on stage all the time, all the time, all the time. Actors, comedians are on stage perhaps two or three hours every night. Um, when you're in a hotel and restaurant, you're, you're on stage all the time. It requires that boldness, but it is just so rewarding mm. versus people in corporate offices who may have more routine jobs that, that look more comfortable, that look easier, you know, to say something say, that require perhaps less boldness, but are, are less rewarding and paradoxically can lead at least as much to to, to burnout. So, so you know, the advice is, is be bold. Be, brave. be bold.
1: <laughs> I love it. It says almost I teed it up for you. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: That's fantastic. Sure. Um, so just before we before I ask you my final question, which you've already partly alluded to, um, can you think of any bad advice that you've ever received over the years that you wish you hadn't taken or that maybe you ignored actually because it was bad? I,
0: I guess yeah, it's um, wait, you know. <laughs> Basically, I'm not a very patient person to, to start with. So, you know, I've been asked to be patient so many times in my life both so many people and you know or, or people tell me well just you know just wait for the next opportunity you know just, just whoa 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 and, and i think that was i think that was bad advice you know <laughs> <laughs> but i haven't followed it very very often but um yeah just the the advice to pause and to perhaps be how can i say to construct things more To, 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 to in my opinion In my, I mean, it's only me, right? It's only Stephen speaking, very personal and what, but it's yeah, that's crappy advice. (laughs) Life life is short, right? So you know, if you wait, you wait, you wait, you know, you'll 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 be in the grave before you know it.
1: Exactly. Only what we only have one life, so we want to make it count, don't we, Stephen? Absolutely agree with that. One hundred percent. So the final question, then, Stephen, before I let you go, is, and you have already got your head very firmly around being brave, bold, and brilliant, which I love. So, when you hear that, what does it mean to you?
0: Take risks, take risks, um, and 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 therefore, yeah, like a, like perhaps um, an explorer. I'm fascinating, fascinated with with. Uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century explorers, right? That, that would go into the depths of America or Antarctica or, or Africa. Uh, well, we can't we can't do that anymore, really, but there's other ways that we can do it. Um, and 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 I guess if I link a lot of things that we've mentioned, being brave, bold, and brilliant in the human connections that we create around us without going necessarily to the depths of Africa, but perhaps knowing precisely better, uh, like this guy you know, who was serving me coffee in Barcelona at, at the bar, or you know, I'm, 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 I'm now connected to, to, to the ladies who come here and clean this area every day. A, a lot of them come from far away. They, they have tough lives. This is where you can create something brave, bold, and brilliant. So it doesn't necessarily need you know to 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 be something seemingly very exciting from the outside. But in the human connections that we create on a very daily um, basis at work with family, but but at work in particular, uh, let's be brave, bold, and brilliant in that, in deepening the connections that we create.
1: Oh, fantastic. I love that. And that's quite a unique um, answer to that question, actually. So, uh, there, fantastic. Stephen, honestly, I can't thank you enough. I've so enjoyed our conversation and thank um,
0: you, it's been
1: thank amazing. You.
0: Thank with you. me. I, I, I tend to be a bit long in my answers. So <laughs> we to... looked
1: at nothing wrong with that quality <laughs> answers, Stephen. So, thank you very, very much. <laughs>
0: okay. Thanks, Jeanette.